You're listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. One of Us is a podcast and video network funded all but entirely by donations and subscriptions. We do accept pitches for audio-based or banner ads, but on a case-by-case basis. If you're interested in that, contact us at oneofusnet at gmail.com. With the amount of audio and video content we generate, it is expensive and extremely time-consuming to keep things running. Please go to the webpage oneofus.net and sign up for a subscription at 2 5 10 or $25 and get a ton of bonus content. One of us needs and appreciates all your support. If it isn't my old nemesis, Pirate Aaron Blue Sexual Lighting Woodle. <laughs> the fuck did pirate come from? Although you look I... like a pirate now. You've got the pirate look. You're like oh, shaved shit. head, the big dark beard and mustache. You just kind of have this pirate vibe you know going. What? I'm totally okay with having a pirate vibe versus a white supremacist vibe because that's usually <laughs> what people read. So it's a I'm pirate's vibe it. for me. <laughs> you just need a big gold loop hoop oh, earring. Like you know, thick can, hoop earring. I can get the hat and just walk around with an eye patch on just to really convince people that I'm a pirate. <laughs> what kind of movie are you going to see tonight? One that's rated R. <laughs> <laughs> it's old, 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 old uh, joke. See, Which, you know, dad, if you've been so to Digital works. Noise, you're used to some old, 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 old jokes. Although I did hear one that made me laugh yesterday. Are you ready? So, with all the sodomy laws the Republicans are getting ready to pass, the lesbians of America should join together and form an army, and they can call themselves Militia Etheridge. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that was pretty funny. (laughs) Oh, shit. Okay. Officially, this is going to be a good episode, I think. We're starting off on the right track. You've already broken me, and we're like one minute in. In all seriousness, if there's a GoFundMe for a lesbian army, let me know where it is so yeah, I can I'd send actually, money. I will totally donate to that. Whether or not you <laughs> uh, have a punny name. <laughs> Indeed. So, yes, Aaron and I have not gotten to do Digital Noise together for a while because of many, many multiple like scheduling issues from both of us. Like, one day it's one time it's my fault, next time it's Aaron's fault. I, it's like, Jesus Christ. I think we both started jobs and yeah. both got sick in the course yep. of this uh, stack of movies. because. I'm pretty sure you handed them to me like the day before I started my new job. And this stack is, and I'm apologies to like all the providers, has been sitting for a while because we had trouble getting to it. But there's some really good stuff and there's some really eh stuff on on this list. But we're going to start with the really good, right? We're going to just get out how much fun it always is to rewatch Singing in the Rain. God, yes. Like... (laughs) Reviewing this is kind of hard because it's just, see, the other 15 times anyone's ever talked about this. It's one of the greatest American movies of all time. It's a great movie about movies. The music is wonderful. The real question is, how is the presentation here on Singing of the Rain? And, and it's fucking gorgeous. It's perfect. Yeah. It's it's, it's one it, of the... It's it. We're done. It's one of the best 4Ks upgrades from an older film I have ever seen. Uh, Singing the Rain is a very colorful, very bright pop type film, and it 
gets that. It just, I mean, it's mesmerizing to look at on a 4K TV. It really is. This is just such a great set. I can't get rid of my old Singing in the Rain, though, because it was like one of those massive collector's edition Blu-ray sets with lots yeah. of cool swag. That's how they you get know, I'm you. Not, that, that's how they got me. Yeah. But Singing in the Rain is one of my all-time favorite movies. It was the reason that I danced for like seven and a half years that I was like, Ooh, I told mom and dad, I saw this. I was like, I want to, I want to take tap dancing lessons. And they're like, okay. So I did for seven and a half years. I, don't ask me. To, don't ask me to dance. I would pay real money to see you and your goth phase doing a dance recital. <laughs> that, yeah, that was like a, no, I was very young when I started. I don't think it extended into the goth phase. Really? <laughs> there, there was no overlap <laughs> on that Venn diagram. No, no, I think that's the goth phase killed the dance phase. <laughs> uh, but yeah, this is uh Gene Kelly was one of my heroes, still one of the nicest guys in Hollywood during this period, very famous for being just a really tremendously good guy, if not a little demanding. Uh, he definitely expected the most out of his co-stars, but he was like, would go and like, you know, work on his own spare time to help them get done what needs to be gotten done. Like Donald O'Connor, who plays his best friend and like, you know, the, the guy next to him apparently was like broken and bruised from his scenes in this movie because they were so exhausting and over the top. This is some of the most athletic dancing you're ever going to see outside of a, what do you call it? The, those movies with Channing Tatum? <laughs> oh, the step up movies with Charlie yeah, Potato? This <laughs> is very physical dancing going on here. And it's just really, really, really funny in a way that is still holds up. And I believe this was, wasn't this Debbie Reynolds first movie? Yes, it was. Uh, she, in fact, her story of dealing with the Gene Kelly requirements for being in a Gene Kelly movie is kind of one of those most famous stories in Hollywood where she was dancing with bloody feet because you just had to live up to that expectation because he was that good. But she's phenomenal right out of the gate, like just mm -hmm. perfect comedic timing. She's a she's an instant movie star. And this is one of the early sort of meta Hollywood films, the Hollywood film about Hollywood films, where it's Gene Kelly is uh, a, a, a stunt man and a, a dancer, Don Lockwood, um, and he can't stand his leading lady, uh, Lena Lamont who is played by hysterically and with a crazy accent by Gene Hagen, uh, who apparently was actually had this incredibly beautiful voice and was a, like a great singer. In fact, in the end where Debbie Reynolds is supposed to be like singing for her behind the stage, it actually was don't, Gene Hagen singing for Debbie Reynolds. Don't ruin that for me. The voice <laughs> is so iconic that I don't know that I can imagine her talking with a different voice. In fact, uh, but basically, so they're working in silent film and then, uh oh, silent films come to an end because sound is here. And they're like, uh, okay, well, what are we going to do? Because the big, these two are the biggest like stars in the world, Gene Kelly and Gene Hagen. And they're like, well, uh, yeah, her voice is so horrible. Uh, you know, it just doesn't go with her acting style or how beautiful she is. So they kind of end up getting Debbie Reynolds to do voice work for her, which she's like got a big ego and she doesn't like, and there's a bunch of little things here, but really the plot is absolutely like 
just a sideline to just all the dance sequences that each have their own sort of like, well, here's what we're dancing about today. And (laughs) just you could take any one of those out of the movie and just watch it and go, that was magnificent. Especially there's one in the middle where the movie just they literally go, hey, I have an idea for a dance sequence. Cut away for like a 15 minute dance sequence that is, mind you, phenomenal. Uh, and then they just come back to the movie and they're like, wouldn't that be swell to make? Yeah, featuring the the um, magnificent Sid Charisse as uh, Kelly's dancing partner in it. But it's like this very stylized, like the idea of like the most expensive Broadway production you've ever seen. Although I will say, <laughs> you say the plot is secondary. I do want to call out that it, even though it is, the, it's a very meta movie. It's a movie about making movies, about the people who make those movies, but it's also ultimately a movie about what happens when your industry changes and you are forced to change how you do what you do for a living or not have a job anymore. And I, it's one of the reasons why I think it endures is while it has great uh, musical sequences and the songs are beautiful and amazing and it's funny, it also has a story that actually pulls and is very relevant to today. Well, if you do just want to watch this for the song breaks, the 4K comes with like instant access to that, where you can just clip just to the songs and skip all the rest. I mean, that's fine. But like, honestly, there's nothing in this movie that's bad. Like, there's no part where I'm like, I'm bored. It's just way, way, way fun all the way through. Uh, There's also an audio commentary that's vintage commentary that has Debbie Reynolds, Donald O'Connor, Sid Charisse, Kathleen Freeman, uh, the co-director of this, Stanley Donan. Screenwriters Betty Comden and Adolph Green, Boz Lerman, which makes a lot of sense, (laughs) right? (laughs) And author Rudy Bellmer that comes with the Blu-ray disc as well in this set, which are the all the legacy extras that were there, including a 50 minute singing in the rain, raining on a new generation, which is basically just a bunch of stars that were new at the time when the Blu-ray came out going like, this is why I love singing in the rain and how it influenced me. And it's okay. I got like 20 minutes in. I'm like, this is not going to tell me anything new about this movie. I didn't already know. <laughs> but yeah, this is a must. If you don't have a copy one way or the other, you should get a copy of Singing in the Rain. I mean, yes, like just agree. buy it without even having seen it. Trust me, you'll love it. It's fantastic. We're going to move to something a lot more obscure, which is a little DVD. And I said, yes, DVD called Straight to VHS. Uh, so it's not on VHS for the record. And it's a documentary, although I swear to God, there were many points I was like, this is a put on. This is like yeah. a total mockumentary or not even mockumentary, but like a fake doc. But uh, supposedly it's real about Uruguay, the country of Uruguay's most notorious film, according to the makers of this movie. Quote unquote. And so like in the 80s, like VHS Tapes were really cheap. Uruguay was like really into apparently VHS and they had their own sort of like film industry there of people making super cheapy straight to VHS movies and selling them like on the street. So there's this whole little weird pocket industry of this shit, uh, you know, of like just weird movies. And so apparently this one director, Manuel Lamas, put out a movie called Act of Violence and a Young Journalist. It's one of these super cheapies. And for some reason, local like film buffs, like separately, like not nobody realized everybody else was doing this, but they all like found it and were like, oh my God, I lo-. it's not that this movie is good, but it's mesmerizing. I just it was, love it. It's a cult hit, right? It's just, it was a cult yeah. hit. Uruguay. 
Yeah, but like one that most that people in the cult didn't know there were other people in the cult. <laughs> uh, so this director of this movie, Emilio Silva Torres, who was a huge fan of this, the point of this is he's trying to figure out. Well, wait, there are other people who like this too, and where, where? How did they discover it? And what happened to the director and the actors? And did he ever do anything else? And it really has a sort of—I mean, it really feels like it's gonna turn into a horror movie, right? Like, yeah. there's points where it yeah. even loses the documentary style and feels like, wait, this is narrative. What are you doing? I really thought for sure it was a put on, but like I said, everything I'm reading says this is absolutely for real, and I believe it if for no other reason. In that by the end, it's not wildly dramatic. There's not like a huge dun dun dun. It's more like, yeah, the guy's kind of an asshole. <laughs> it's kind of funny because right about the time they start changing the format of it, I was like, you know, I don't know that I really want to know a lot about this guy. And then, I like, as if that happens, you can feel the filmmakers go, and we don't really want to know too much more about him. So it's yeah. a little different now. <laughs> yeah, it's very interesting for a while. It really grabs you, but I think it just kind of lost me towards the end Agreed. as it starts just sort of petering out. But I also did not watch more than 10 minutes of the bonus feature, which is the movie in question, the act of violence in a young journalist. Uh, that's not, no effort was made to clean it up or fix it. It looks like you're watching an old beat up VHS tape <laughs> with bad tracking and everything. And I was like, this is terrible. <laughs> yeah, I've hit a point in my life that I don't want to endure that anymore. I am no longer a teenager looking at blurry porn. Yeah, I'm just not as curious to capture every last hidden gem as I used to be. Agreed. Yeah, I, I agree. I think the documentary is, is interesting, but it doesn't really have a hugely satisfying conclusion. It does feel like the filmmakers kind of hit a point where they went... I don't know that we want to continue doing this. And so we're just going to kind of change it up a bit. And yeah. it, it was, it was interesting from a technical standpoint, but it also goes on a long time and doesn't really work as well as it would hope. And so it's Agreed. more of like, this is a fun experiment. If you're a documentary fan and a weird documentary fan or a, a found, uh, a hidden found footage. kind of a cinema yeah. fan, it's worth checking out. But I don't know that I would rush out if you were uh, an average rando. Yeah, agreed. Another film that I think is hardly essential, but is certainly very interesting and, and not a bad film is Pushing Hands. And this came out originally in 1992. It's being re-released on Blu-ray by Film Movement. What makes this notable is that it was the first film by Taiwanese filmmaker Ang Lee, who, of course, went on to do many, many, many very, very good films and a few not so great ones. But I really like Ang Lee. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is one of my all-time favorite movies. I completely adore it. Uh, and I was like, yeah, I, I kind of want to see this with a uh, Sihung Lung, who was a, uh, very popular actor when he was younger, been over in a hundred films, um, more recently stuff like Eat, Drink, Man, Woman and, and the Wedding Banquet. Uh, he plays a Chinese Tai Chi master living in New York City, uh, who is living with his, uh, family, uh, his, was well, son Alex, who is married to a white woman. Uh, uh, Deb Snyder as Martha, and she's not thrilled about him being in the house. This apparently has been a relatively recent development, him moving in there, coming over from China, and he's very elderly, and he's very set in his ways. Doesn't and speak English. She doesn't speak it, Chinese. 
Exactly. And she's stuck at home with him most, pretty much most days. Uh, and this is causing problems in their marriage as well. But he's going off to teach Tai Chi classes at the local Chinese cultural center. And there's kind of like a thing where he and this lady there, elderly lady there, Miss, Mrs. Chen, who's a cooking teacher and also expatriate from Beijing, are starting to bond. And, you know, there's, there's something going on there. Uh, I, it's OK. Not a lot really happens in this film, you know, <laughs> But I think what is happening here, like the the discussion of sort of integration of these two worlds is actually kind of fascinating. This is not like a big Hollywood film like a lot of Ang Lee's later films are. This is a very quiet little indie yeah. drama that, that features some strong performances um, and some interesting topic points, but not a lot to keep your interest if you're not in the mood specifically for this sort of thing. Yeah, it's a very quiet, methodical movie. Ang Lee has a... He focuses on the silence and just letting those moments sit. And so there's lots of quietly watching people go through these motions of their life. But what ended up kind of working for me, and I think why I, I had a good time with it, even though it's very much an early freshman effort. Like, you can feel that this is Angley early on. Um, the budget is smaller, but... It's fascinating because it feels like the sequel to a lot of the great Wuxia uh, action films, like the old um, Once Upon a Time in China. Like, mm -hmm. if he didn't end up going to America with the 13th aunt and instead retired and moved in with his son in San Francisco and his uh, daughter-in-law... That's what this feels like, because they, they slowly reveal kind of a little bit here and there that he's basically a god of martial arts. Like, there's a sequence where he punches somebody in a just in a, an exercise and knocks them 30 feet across the room. <laughs> yeah. uh, or there's another scene where he uh, – I'm not, I'm not entirely sure what he does because it's shot around it because they clearly didn't have the budget to do it. But where he's, like, performing surgery on the wife with his hands <laughs> – and yeah. somehow cuts her, um, just with his fingers. And so, like, he, he's a wuxia martial arts master who just is in a world where that is no longer what is no longer of any use. And that was the part of the movie that I kind of found myself interested in was that story, uh, going from being super useful to not. And even as the movie gets into its third act climax, like, it ends up kind of having a, semi-action-y third act end, which is kind of out of nowhere, but kind of fits in this weird little comedy bit that Ang Lee has going on. I, I liked it, but it definitely is for people who can stomach slower, more quiet, more methodically paced films. Agreed. And if you like this, the Blu-ray, brand new Blu-ray comes with a new filmmakers roundtable, a Zoom meetup uh, with a guy named Simon Abrams moderating with the editor, uh, co-producer and co-writer and the, another co-producer, uh, just hanging out, talking about the movie, giving little, uh, stories about the making of it, what have you. But that, that's about all that's on here. So we're going to move on to our next one, which is One-Armed Boxer. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> uh, if you're looking for a martial arts film that's going to pretty much constantly have a, a, martial arts scenes in it and less st other stuff going on well that's pretty much one arm boxer for yeah. you here even though despite the title the main character has two arms until really close to the end of the movie <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so, so it's kind of weird um 
<laughs> I it's um I don't know, man. I feel like I'm reaching that sort of like fusion point of like watching these Shaw Brothers films that I'm like starting to lose track of what happened in what movie. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> that that's fair because it's not really about that. Uh, like this is this is not the kind of kung fu movie that I always really go to. The fighting is a very dance styled, um, and it's it's a very traditional kung fu of that era. But what sets it apart for me is the absolutely killer badass soundtrack. It mm. has a very funky, delightful soundtrack that right. from my 40-year-old white guy mouth sounds really goofy, but I promise it's legit good uh, and carries a lot of the movie when it might just kind of be just another Shaw Brothers Kung Fu movie. Was this the one that had the the music that, that Tarantino later used? That I want to say so, yes. That like is in one of his movies, very no like Kill Bill or something. I, I think it's I, in Kill Bill Volume One because like it it is one of the movies that he really enjoys and he talks about it a lot, or at least he did know, around that time. I know the Alamo Drafthouse uses for like one of their ads song a song from this the dun dun dun. <laughs> it's very dramatic, <laughs> but yet uh, Tian Lung is played by Jimmy Wang Yu, who is one of the biggest guys in Shaw Brothers films for sure uh, a huge stars partially because this was a big 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 hit and he is uh he gets in a fight with the hook gang which the title is not metaphorical they walk around with giant hooks everywhere and they use them to fight with yeah. uh when when he and his friends are eating out and they're bad guys they deal opium and and run prostitution and they're rivals of the school that Tian Lung is there um and uh, they, of course, the good guys beat the shit out of them, no problem. It's one of those, and as opposed to the ones where they have to get super strong and beat them. But uh, the hook members keep getting their asses kicked, and uh, the 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 master there challenges their master a fight, and their you know the master kicks the bad guy's master's ass. But he gets his the bad guy gets his uh, revenge by hiring a bunch of mercenary martial artists from. Uh, Shanghai, which are two karate experts and their teacher, a judo master, a taekwondo expert, two Thai boxing fighters, a yoga expert, question mark, two mystic Tibetan llamas. <laughs> and they're all very wacky, extreme caricatures. They're just all weird. And it turns into I don't know, almost like a Power Rangers sort of thing, but like, you know what I mean? Where yeah. everybody's so exaggerated and they have very specific like magic power skills and it's okay. But ultimately what it comes down to, Hero loses his arm, gets nursed back to health, learns how to fight with one arm, which is somehow even more powerful than fighting with two arms and wins the day. But it, it's fun. It's one of the more fun ones I've probably watched in out of the Shaw Brothers movies recently. I kind of wish I had had more of a break between it and all the others because I would have appreciated it more. But this is one of those that I'm like, if you wanted to like show a, a Shaw Brothers film for your friends that everybody's going to have a good time at, this is definitely one of the more colorful, crazy ones. Yeah, I, I think the problem with the genre is that I always think back to the flying guillotine. Mm -hmm. uh, which I saw way too early on. And like, it always feels like that where everyone's just a bunch of superheroes doing their superhero thing. None of this is real and that's okay, but it's not as good as the flying guillotine. <laughs> no, I don't think it is either. I mean, it's still, it's still pretty darn good. It is. It is. It was oh, fun. It's fine. Although it, it has like, I don't know. There's just, there's weird stuff. Like there's a Chinese guy playing an Indian guy and they give him gray face for some reason. <laughs> I'm not sure what, 
that that's about but <laughs> they think indians are gray all right yeah, I, fair enough <laughs> i i think that is half the fun of watching movies made between like 1960 and 1985 is how racism is going to show up because you know it's going to be there but it's a different flavor every time by the way you know that master of the flying guillotine is the sequel to the one this movie right no holy shit yeah i didn't realize they were actually related <laughs> yep he plays a, a jimmy uh comes back to play the tian lung again in master of the Fl- well, flying that Guillotine, would explain the one-armed why kung fu master that would explain why it reminded me so much of it <laughs> uh there's a commentary on this new arrow release of this by someone named frank DeJang. i don't know who that is there's an interview with uh wang yu it's an old archival uh, interview uh there's alternate english credits there's a trailer gallery an image gallery there's a great insert booklet with different essays uh, about the film uh, this is not one of the more elaborately packaged ones. I mean, it should have came, come with a pair of like fake uh, vampire teeth. <laughs> I'm surprised they didn't just like include it in the set. Because like, why did the one the volume gu- two? Why did the one guy who was like the master character have vampire teeth? They never. He just has vampire teeth. He just I don't does, know, man. Don't, don't worry don't, about don't it, dude. Question his choices. <laughs> All right, so we'll move on to another Arrow set called Rogue Cops and Racketeers, which when it has a title like that, you know, oh, there's more than one movie in the set. And then sure enough, there are two crime thrillers <laughs> from Italy in the 70s that are included in this here. Uh, one is called The Big Racket and the other is called The Heroin Busters. Now, The Big Racket is widely regarded as kind of one of the classic Italian uh, polizio films, police films. Uh, these both directed by Enzo, uh, Castellari, who was one of the standout directors from this period. But I would definitely say that, like, of watching the two of these, the big racket is the one you're like, oh, wow, that was actually pretty fucking good. Which is surprising because, from a story perspective, I think that the heroin busters sounds like the kind of movie that would be a better film. The heroin busters is very much about, like, police and if they're going too far and if they're following the letter of the law and a policeman basically going around the law to try and catch these drug smugglers and is what he doing right or justified it was Mm -hmm. the 70s so of course it is um and then whereas like the racketeers or the the big racket is about them trying to stop a apparently massively lucrative protection racket where (laughs) Like that, which I don't know. To me, a protection racket doesn't seem like that big of a thing. It's always like the side hustle that they have going on. But no, it's a multi level, deep, internationally funded by deep pockets protection racket. And that just kind of feels silly, but it's a damn fine action film uh, that, that largely focuses around like a little mall that's getting extorted by these thugs. And the police who are, again, willing to go outside the law to get the bad guys that need to get caught. Uh, and it, it's, it has some weirdly kind of American-ish aspects to it. The idea that, like, this is the cop. He's like a straight arrow cop, except he totally isn't. He's yeah. like, he doesn't care what he has to do to get <laughs> what, what he w- wants to accomplish. And the end, he forms like a, a dirty dozen group to take down the bad guys of like other not so nice 
like yeah, other criminals that are like, yeah, I have a reason to want to take these guys down as well. Or alternately, I'll keep get you out of jail. By that, he means literally break you out of jail yeah. if you help me do this. Of like for the great sniper and the great. I mean, it's almost a spaghetti western type of thing, but set you know. 70s modern day and weirdly starring uh vincent gardenia who to me is always the the guy who was the boss in mr mushnick and little shop of horrors but he in his time was in a lot of great movies like the hustler and the front page and heaven can wait and death wish uh this is just fun it it you can't walk out of this you can't walk into this going like, oh, this will be a movie about how cops are always the good guys because they are not They are This is very quite this is questionable in the same way Death Wish or something is, yeah, or like you know, Dirty or, Harry, you know, yeah, exactly. It's that kind of thing, which, like you said, is kind of weird considering they're the bad guys. And <laughs> in some ways, it like really deals with that in the next movie, uh, the heroin, whatever. What is it the called? Heroin again? The heroin busters. Yeah, yeah. Which is, again, not quite as good, um, and partially just because it's slower, but it's still, it has a massively cool, giant gunfight at the end of it. Yeah. It's like, whoa, this is neato. Yeah. And they both bad. starred. The, has some great stuff in it. They both starred the same guy, Fabio Testi, who is just like a serious hunk of, like, man, he's a looker. <laughs> uh, but I think these are both fun. I had a good time with it. I genuinely did overall. And these are... I mean, the, like I said, The Big Racket is regularly held up as maybe the best Palizio film, like it definitely in the top five. So if the, you want to watch one of those, the Italian uh, films of that, then this is the one to go to. I mean, and the extra features on here, there's really nice ones uh, here. The, you can see the Italian and the English version of both. There's audio commentary uh, by some critics. There's the Year of Racketeering, a new interview with the co-writer and director Enzo Castellari. So I guess he's still alive, surprisingly. Violent Times is a new interview with the star Fabio Testi. Angel Face for a Tough Guy, a new interview with actor Massimo, Massimo Vanni. King of Moviola, a new interview with the editor. The Great Racket is a uh, Another look at someone called Lovely John, who's exploring the careers of the people who did the soundtrack with this. And then there's image galleries. Uh, and then you have the other one, like I said, which is definitely not treated with quite as much love because it's not generally treated as with quite as much love, <laughs> but still has some bonus features on it as well. Italian and English version, uh, the audio commentary by the same people from the last one. Endless Pursuit, a new interview with Enzo Castellari about it. Drug Squad, new interview with Fabio Testi. The Drug Dealer, new interview with actor Massimo Vanni. How They Killed Italian Cinema, new interview with the editor. A Cop on the Set, new interview with retired Polizio criminologist Nicola Longo. The Eardrum Busters, uh, the feature it again with this, whoever this guy is, Lovely John. But oh, yeah, I forgot. That's the one thing I liked better about. Uh, heroin busters is the soundtracks by goblin if i'm not mistaken it's the one they did after deep red so it's like after they did the one that broke them and made them a huge like everybody wants them act they went and did this and you get it because the previous film by this director was as previously yeah. mentioned was a huge hit anyway yeah these are i don't know are, are these things you'd watch again i know Absolutely. i'd watch the big racket yeah. again like to, to to me the, the one thing that you have to be aware of is that they're all very much they're both exploitation films where like, yeah. uh, if there is a young woman, she will be raped by the end of the movie. If there is somebody who threatens violence, you will see that violence happen. Um, yep. and so as long as that kind of movie 
doesn't bother you uh and you can really enjoy the mean spirited nature of it these are definitely rewatchable the action is well done <coughs> there's legitimate tension uh like it's bloody fun it's a great little exploitation action film i thoroughly enjoyed both of them well, something very different we're going to review is the new review from uh, new review, the new Blu-ray from DC's animated home release section, <laughs> which now there's it's like no shows, just like separate movies that sometimes tie together. And this new one, Constantine, the House of Mystery is not just that. It's one of those. They've done this once before where it's like, you know how we have the extended shorts on that we attach to the other ones that are about minor characters? Well, this is in case you don't want to buy all those. You can just buy one and this will have like a bunch of the others, which it has uh, Kamandi, The Last Boy on Earth, which is about 18 minutes. That was a Jack Kirby series. The Losers. um for about 16 minutes that was relaunched as a vertigo title in the two thousands kind of Steve Ditko ish. And then a very sort of Saturday morning cartoon in the seventies aesthetic blue beetle using that character, which kind of pissed me off. Cause I'm like, I want a real blue beater okay. beetle thing. Thank you. <laughs> like it was good and funny, yeah. but it wasn't what I wanted. God damn it. <laughs> no, no. I'm like, why is no one interested in adapting blue beetle or, well, I mean- or, uh, his buddy, what's his name? What was kind of nice though is like the week. Oh, you mean Booster Gold? Like, yeah, Booster though, Gold. Like the month I saw this, or <laughs> the month because this was a while ago, uh, they released all of the Blue Beetle set photos. Uh, not released, I should say. The people took pictures while they were filming Blue Beetle, and it made oh. me feel good that like, okay, we're getting a proper Blue Beetle coming soon. Finally, I didn't even know that was coming, so oh, yeah, I'm yeah, relieved yeah, to it, hear that. And it looks good, um, but. Like, so here's my only issue with this is that, in my opinion, I think the Constantine story that kind of sets this up, which I think is mostly predictable with a nice twist towards the end that I didn't, that I did not expect to happen. Um, I think it was almost the weakest of them, which is not a bad thing. It wasn't unenjoyable. It's just that Kamandi was really cool and different. Uh, and the losers was really fun. And they got to fight giant monsters in a World War II era sci-fi story. And like, that's really cool. I enjoyed both of those. Blue Beetle was, was okay. Again, just not what I wanted. Yeah. Very funny, but not, not, well, we just want a real Blue Beetle thing at this point. (laughs) Whereas with Constantine, like it, maybe it's because I'm, I've seen a lot of these stories now. And so I, whenever I kind of recognize the trope of where they're going with it, it's like, Oh, you're doing this. And then yes, indeed, that is exactly what you were doing. Um, it's just, it's another story where someone gets trapped in a time loop of death and it, it didn't do enough different that I ended up being just totally fine with that. Um, to be clear, it's actually an epilogue to one of the worst releases ever by DC Animated Universe Collection, Justice League Dark Apocalypse War, which sort of brought to an end the storyline that they had been sort of going in and out of all along so they could, like, relaunch everything, Uh which, you know, good, but, like, that movie is awful, and I, this is better, but it's still kind of predictable. I think I'm pretty – I think I'm on record on this show – Saying that that movie was so bad, it retroactively made the entire universe of movies that it bookended bad for me. <laughs> because I know that if I ever sit down and follow that thread, that's how it's going to end. 
But, you know, I, I enjoyed Constantine much better than that, for one thing. But it's also sort of like a, hey, remember when we used to read lots of Vertigo books? This is kind of very much feels yeah. like a sort of Vertigo one-shot thing. And, yeah, it's a, it's a horror version of the time loop thing. Like, you, no matter what you can try, you can't escape from the house. That you, you see your friends and family there, but they always turn out to be monsters and yada yada. I mean, it's it's okay. But, yeah, you're right. The other shorts are considerably better in this. Give me a Kamandi movie. I didn't know I wanted a Kamandi movie, but I yeah. want a full-length animated Kamandi movie hard. I, I'm like, make a video game. Yes! <laughs> I want to play a game of Kamandi. That's pretty cool shit. Uh, <laughs> there is one extra, which is called DC Showcase One Story at a Time, which is a 16-minute uh, featurette with comments about the, the, some from some of the directors and producers on here, but whatever. Uh, let's move on to Presagio. Am I saying that right? Is it Presagio? I think it's Presagio. Is it? All right. So this is another, right. I don't know. This is a, a little psychological horror f- uh, film from Argentina that's out on DVD and digital right now. It won Best Latin American Fantasy Film at Nocturna and has gotten audience favorite awards at various different genre festivals. It features Camilo, who is a writer whose wife and child have died and he's very, very traumatized. He, he regularly is throughout this. It's sort of like it's the time is uncertain. It's like you both have a, a, uh, unreliable narrator who is Camilo himself. And then you have things sort of chronologically hard to follow at points, but he's seeing a hypnosis, uh, hip, hip, hypnosis, hypnotist. Sorry, I can't speak. Uh, but in real life, there's this guy whose face is always hidden by an umbrella, uh, who seems to be following him and trying to push him to finish his autobiographical novel, which is very hard for him to write because, you know, bad shit, shit happened. Bad. Yeah. Um, and this is like one of those films that you're supposed to get a lot out of out of it by paying very close attention to what it's doing visually. And it is very visually interesting film. There's a lot of very creative filmmaking going, going on here, but it's, you know, falls in the category of your in terms of like horror movie of like Jacob's Ladder or Angel Heart or something like that, where there's a mystery here, everything is not as it seems, yada, yada, like monsters appearing in your life type thing. But is it just in your head? What's real? I thought this was actually pretty darn good for a very low budget film. I mean, it's clearly just like probably made for like a hundred thousand dollars or something. If that, if that, I, I didn't like it. Um, you I, bummer. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm usually such a champion for these low budget movies. I'm like, no, nah, no, nah, I know it's a piece of shit, but like <laughs> the lighting was good. Four stars. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you do do that. That is true. You know? That sounds like you. But like, I thought this was visually interesting. Like, there is clearly a surrealist been in this guy's mind, and it works. Um, he has good visuals. The he regularly uses non traditional film stock, and I don't know if that's because a that was all he could afford, or b it was intentional. But it works. But every time it went to him talking with his therapist which is a lot i checked out i just the scenes didn't push for me there was like it was individually great or not individually great it was individually interesting the certain components of the movie but he never really tied it together well enough where i was like into it uh Mm. like i never really bought into the grief because they were talking a lot about the book uh, and it's, and 
I don't know. I just, I never really was on his side. And so the whole time I was just like, okay, okay movie, let's, let's go. Let's go. I mean, that's let's the worst on. thing is that he, he's not a compelling protagonist. He's not terribly likable at all. He's kind of a jerk. He's not even that interesting to me. Yeah. You're, the most interesting thing about him is that his wife and child died in a car accident. Yeah. And you're like, okay. That doesn't make a character interesting. No. It's what they do that makes them interesting. I agree with you. I mean, the star here is the cinematographer who come up comes up with some great creepy stuff to do and really, really gorgeous shots. But yeah, I just this is ultimately kind of forgettable. There's a making of and deleted scenes on here. I watched the deleted scenes. I did not watch the making of, for the record. <laughs> I assume you watched neither. I did not. No. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we're going to finish off with uh, one of the actual newer ones I got sent because I was like, help, does anyone else beside me still watching the Fantastic Beasts movies in Digital Noise? The other two guys are like, nope. <laughs> Aaron's like, oh, hell yeah, I saw Fantastic Beasts, The Secret of Dumbledore. <laughs> hey, man, say what you will about this third movie in the prequel series, um, all directed by David Yates, who did some of the best ones of the original Harry Potter series. It's the best of the Fantastic Beasts movies, I think, which is a very low bar to clear. Agreed. Agreed, actually. <laughs> uh, 100%. It's the best, which is something considering it's coming off of a movie so bad, it may be the worst major studio film I've ever seen in my life. Like, what cracks cracks me up the most about this though is that like they're like oh well johnny depp is kind of problematic right now maybe so we'll just replace him which was regardless of the issues a great idea with mads mickelson without explanation um they had him that character the main villain trans uh, you know change bodies once before so why not he's uh, literally been a different actor in every movie i want colin farrell to come back that would have been right? cooler but uh, that being said, this also starts Ezra Miller. <laughs> They're like, God damn it. Warner Brothers can't catch a break. <laughs> well, there was that bit while they were starting to film this where it's like the most problematic cast and crew of the entire film industry. Because it's yeah. written by J.K. Rowling as well, who's self-destructing her career. Look, here, here's the thing. I think this is an interesting. It's not a great movie, but it's a good movie. Um, I think that they finally have started to figure out at least some kind of narrative push for these films. It's kind of out of nowhere. This is a very standalone movie somehow. Um, but I still think they struggle a lot with giving their individual characters kind of something media to, to grab onto. Uh, the returning character, the human played by, not the human, the muggle, uh, and I should <laughs> well, know his name. Dan Fogler. Dan Fogler. Like, like he has an interesting arc. He yeah. uh, like, and but aside from him, all of the other major characters from the series so far kind of just are there to do things for Dumbledore, and that's yeah. who this movie is ultimately about. Uh, the one thing that was nice is they do codify the fact that Dumbledore was gay finally, and so it's not just J.K. Rowling tweeting out random bullshit. And that part of the movie, I think, does sell. Uh, it works. It's a little wishy-washy, but it still is nice to see a tentpole sci-fi action movie that is anchored in a homosexual relationship. Mads Mikkelsen, for all of it, it's weird as shit that he's in this movie. 
uh, he does a great job. He's Mads Mikkelsen. He always does a can, great job. Well, can I say that's the thing? I mean, leading with what you're saying, the movie spends almost all his time either with Jude Law as Dumbledore, who is definitely the character they should have been focusing on from the very beginning, yeah. or with the bad guys, <laughs> you know, who are much more interesting than any of the good guys yeah. except for Dan Fogler, who actually gets this material, knows what to do with it, and has a lot of opportunities to have fun again in this movie. He's by far the best character of any of the original cast in this. And they realize that, I mean, really it's, this is in theory about Eddie Redmayne as Newt Scamander. And he has barely any fucking dialogue even in this movie. So it's so frustrating because like nobody, they don't do a bad job. Everyone in this is coming with their a game. It's just that, the scripts have a lot of problems. They always have. I, if they continue this franchise into a movie for, I desperately need them to get a different writer involved because Rowling is just not pulling her weight, uh, which she's a bitch. So big surprise, but uh, um, they, she, thing- she did actually, they assigned her someone to work with on this film, uh, Steve Cloves, who co-wrote it with her, who knows oh, what that means for degrees, but apparently he, uh, did all but one of the Harry Potter films. So the one thing I will say, though, that's kind of fascinating, though, and I don't know if this is something you noticed, but this is an amazingly quiet movie. Hmm. And it's something that's happened over the course of the Harry Potter franchise that, like, they're, they're big sci-fi fantasy kind of action movies, depending on the one you're watching, um, especially when you get into the newer ones. But because... Everything is driven by magic. The soundscape that this movie plays with and the rest of them are very different, especially when you're adults and they're not calling out magic spells and yelling them left and right. It's Mm -hmm. just, it's a quiet movie. This movie opens with a really intense, dark, violent chase uh, through these really kind of into the line grass from lost world where the velociraptors attack setting and it's without music. It's just the sound of wind and the little bitty spells going off in the distance. And it's a haunting effect and it continues through the rest of the movie. And it's something that I didn't realize till this one, just like these are giant bombastic action films that are really quiet in their violence and their action. And it's kind of fun. You know, this also could be easily the last film yes. in the series. I mean, this really should have like a little title card at the end that says Grindelwald went back to his home planet, <laughs> you yeah. know, because like, although it doesn't like, you know, they don't kill him, it's or ca- even capture him. It's definitely a sort of like everything this has been leading up to. It didn't work out for him. Yeah. So it's like, it, it, and it wraps up so many storylines that have been going through. I mean, there's a lot of feel watching this. Like we need to go out with one good one. And we're pretty sure that even with that, we're probably not going to get a next one. So let's make it. So if this is the final one in the series, you'll be like, that's fine. It, it, it more or less finishes a lot of the main storylines, even though poor Catherine Watterson, who's like one of the main characters in the previous two and the love interest for the main character, Tina Goldstein, literally doesn't even appear in this film till like the last minute yeah, or so. One shot at the end. <laughs> yeah. Which is the shame. Cause like I, I liked her and I liked Eddie Redmayne in the first movie. I enjoyed them anchoring a big movie to a couple of socially awkward dorks who don't know how to be charming. And like, I thought that was an interesting stance and I still do wish his character got to do more. 
the next one, if they do, it should just be called Fantastic Beasts, Just Dumbledore and Grindelwald, alternatively getting it on and magic battling. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The magic battles here with Dumbledore, we've never really seen Dumbledore, like, fucking let loose. And here you really get to see, like, why he's so powerful, what, you know, what he can do. And you're like, God damn, dude, (laughs) you are a badass. I like that they also kill your heroes this movie and establish that like yeah dumbledore is a good guy but he is not a good person necessarily right (laughs) he's still explicitly done some pretty horrible things which honestly i'm here for i like the idea of making people gray instead of just all good or all bad yeah this is a man who's like in regret for some of the decisions he made in the past and is still trying to do he's trying to be a better man yeah. uh like he's firmly on that path to the man that we know from the Harry Potter films you know he's past the hump <laughs> of <laughs> darkness and just trying to know what the right thing is to do and he's by far the most interesting character in this uh it's a shame that the movie still doesn't spend yet enough time with him as it should yeah. but anyway there's as you might expect with like a big movie like this lots and lots and lots of short featurettes just covering every single angle is like even more fantastic beats magical or muggle the german ministry of magic which is a very straightforward and kind of dull look they're like nazis get it they're like nazis okay fine we're getting tired of that uh anyway it's a bunch of that stuff there's five clips uh that come to about seven minutes of deleted scenes i didn't think any of them were particularly interesting there's a promo for the the harry potter stage production secrets of the cursed child i don't know it's fine it's it's definitely the best one of these if you haven't watched any of them but you like the harry potter's you could probably just pick this one up and start it as it is, and it'll tell you everything you need to know in the first, like, ten minutes. Yeah, at, at most, just the first and the third one. Just don't don't ever watch the second. and just It's so j- bad. J- just know that your favorite character from the first movie is going to turn evil. And just, just deal with that. <laughs> yes. And otherwise, you do not need to watch the second movie at all. Uh, so that's it for our show. All we have to do is like pick the pick of the week and I'm pretty sure it's singing in the rain on 4k. Yeah. Yeah. It's singing in the rain. I I was afraid you were going to force me to go rogue and I was going to be like, fine, it's rogue cops and racketeers. Oh, Oh, I thought you said then you'd have to go rogue. No, 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 no. It's definitely singing in the rain. Yeah. It's a, it's a great package. Lots of great extras. One of the best 4k presentations I've seen on anything. It's yeah, it's a must own. And sorry, you definitely have on the recording my son telling me he loves me. So well, I mean, who doesn't? Your big, lovable blue pirate, Aaron. Yeah, I'm <laughs> blue sexual. Which you know Indeed. what? Now that you're not recording video, makes no sense. All my lights in my office are blue. I just. Uh. I don't know why. It doesn't matter. You don't need to know. why. That's Aaron's decision. He chose to be It's my life. You don't need to be a part of it. (laughs) Thank you, Aaron. 